Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Oh, he has the voice of an angel voiceover guy. You are magnificent. We are back. Episode 8 of The Antique Show. Sorry that we've uh, been away for around about three weeks. Lots of travel overseas. Went over to Tokyo. Never been to Japan. Went to Tokyo. And unbeknownst to me, this is with my EO group, that's the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, we climbed Mount Fuji. Zero training, had no idea what we were about to embark on, and it hurt. It hurt a lot. There was midpoint, around about, because it's around about a 4,000 metre climb, and we got around about 3,300 metres, stopped at Station 7, for an overnight stay. Now, overnight stay means that uh, we got there around about four o'clock in the afternoon, and by 1 a.m. in the morning, we're up, and by 1.30, we're back on the slope for the final climb to get sunrise at the peak of Mount Fuji. But anyway, the legs were so sore. But it occurred to me, and this is something that I'd learnt about, and this is nothing to do with antiques, this is more about a, a, a personal learning, that I don't push myself hard enough. I was able to climb to 4,000 metres and the oxygen is getting a little bit thin up there, but it didn't have a huge impact. But I soon forgot about how weary my body felt when I was standing on top of Mount Fuji looking back out over Tokyo and and parts of Japan. It was a really awe-inspiring moment for me, but I did reflect on maybe I could push myself a little bit harder in other parts of my life. That's a personal learning, a reasonable explanation as to why we haven't had an episode for three weeks, but we're back on and joining me in the studio down at Grange is the man behind the glass, Mark. There he is. He's back. He's had a haircut this week, so he's gone for a number two all the way around other than the center. I'm not quite sure what it means, it's a throwback to maybe his punk days early on. But Mark is joining me in the studio, and we've got a big episode this week. We're going to discover about the female potter, Grace Seacombe. We're going to talk about bronzes, realize how sane we actually are when we finalize the top list of weird stuff people collect. And there's some absolute rippers in there this week. So we go through the final list The countdown is on the top 10 weird things that people collect. And there's lots more to talk about in episode 8 of The Antique Show. And as a voiceover guy said, my name is Jason Harris. You can contact me at jason at scamaloctions.com.au. You can also text me, if you like, on 0421-345-663. We've had a few emails come in this week, and one of the emails was from Mavis. And Mavis is asking us about bronzes. So that's why we're going to discover more about bronzes. To the news. Oh, lots of news this week, a bumper episode. Let's start with the local news and climbing to new heights. Collectors were sent into a frenzy by photographs of Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay conquering Mount Everest when they were, well, went under the hammer. Not Sir Edmund Hillary or Tenzing, but the photographs went under the hammer at Gibson's Auctions in Melbourne late August. Now, it was 1953, and the pair were creating history, and they were joined by English climber, explorer, and photographer Alfred Gregory, and he was the official still photographer of the exhibition, and he records the climb, and these are now subject to folklore. 
The unique coloured photographs, and that's the interesting part, the unique coloured photographs of Tenzing Norgay on Mount Everest summit were taken by Sir Edmund Hillary and were very popular at the time, bringing around about $7,300. While a black and white photograph of the two expeditions, and this was taken by Alfred Gregory, approaching 8,500 metres, sold for 5,856, and that would be including buyer's premium. So that's a lot of money for two photographs. And to a different time, or more accurately, time pieces. Now to circa 1885. Circa, what do we say, what do we mean when we say circa? Circa means around or about. So around about 1885, these clocks were built by French clockmaker André Romain Guilmet, and they sold for a hammer price of $38,000 each. And this was at Lesky's auction in Melbourne, and this was their fine and rare clock auction held on September the 15th, which was my birthday. One is a nautical ship stern, industrial clock, lot number 67, that sold for almost six times the upper catalogue estimate. And its companion, lot number 66, was a fire pump industrial clock. And that's what probably made these very, very unusual. And Gilmay was recognised for the best manufacturer of mystery clocks that also feature an industrial theme. Okay, and now here's an interesting story on attic finds. Attic finds are things you find tucked away in grandma's cupboard. We don't really have a lot of attics in Australia. We have cellars. We have boxes, deep, dark corners of cabinets. Anyway, attic find is very much an English term. An old painting Dad hung in the dining room of his Geelong home of the Strawn family for decades, just sold for $100,000. Now, the oil on canvas was actually the piece of turf stacks at Connemara by post-impressionist artist Paul Henry, who was best known among Ireland's or he was one of the island's best-known painters in the 20s and 30s. Now, what's interesting, there's also been another barn find here in Adelaide, and this will be coming up for sale quite shortly. Uh, expected the price around about $100,000, and it's the watercolour painted by Colonel William Light. Very, very exciting news. And into silver news. Silver news. A rare pair of 10 centimetre high silver and silver gilt salt cellars, modelled on anthropomorphic, frogs around a water lily and marked London 1875. Now none of those is, is really important. 1875 is not that old. The fact that they were frogs around water lilies, that's pretty exciting, but they were made by Henry or William Henry D. Now the firm is well known to connoisseurs of unusual silver novelties and patterns for many of his quirky models that were painted with the original design surviving the UK National Archives, and that's the serious side of this story. Now, they had an estimate of $1,000 to $1,500. Final hammer price was $22,000. My understanding is the buyer was an avid collector of silver located in Victoria, so they're going to be returning home. Now to international news, ugly pottery. And I mean this nicely. Ugly pottery, in this way, it is martinware. Now, look up martinware. Google martinware pottery, what we call grotesque heads and very unusual pottery. Now, it proves to be quite rare and beautiful. There was a 40-lot collection from the Avery family came up for sale on September 21. Uh, this is held in England. Some of the highlights amongst the 40 lots... Uh, of the Martinware were a series of nine face mugs of different sizes and various estimates between 800 and 1200 pounds 
up to about £4,600, selling for in excess of that. But there's also a 20 centimetre triple bird group dated. They had an estimate of 25 to £35,000. Now, we don't see a lot of Martin Weir in Australia, and it's highly distinctive. So look it up, Martinware. Now this one, uh, a buyer gets his teeth into ivories, Japanese carved ivories soar far above estimates and chorleys. Now the reason they're still selling it is the final bill for uh, the ban on selling ivories is yet to be ratified by the government. Apparently the English or the British government's got a few other things on their hands at the moment, like Brexit and a uh, new prime minister. Anyway, that's another story again. But interestingly enough, a late 19th or late 18th century 6.5 centimetre long netski, which is quite a large netski of a tiger clawing a bamboo, was offered for sale. Now this had a price around about 500 to 700 pounds. It eventually sold for 5,500 pounds. The interesting part about this, though, is given that there's going to be a ban in England and potentially Europe on selling ivory, there's still quite a high collectible market for ivory netskis. Now, whether they get returned back to uh, Japan or China, don't really know. Interesting enough, there was another um, tusk. It was a 42 centimeter tusk depicting an elephant carrying a large basket. So it was an elephant tusk depicting an elephant. There's an irony there somewhere. Um, had an estimate of four to six hundred dollars is by Meiji craftsman uh, Toshio, and it sold for three thousand pounds. Anyway, it'd be great to see the end of ivories that size being sold. Um, there's more on this coming up in a later episode. I think episode ten or eleven. We're going to talk about the ivory ban. We're just finalising, which we have been for the last three months, but it's a big topic on the ivory ban in England and how it's really going to affect Australia because it's going to be a flow on effect here as well. And news from across the Tasman. Well, it's actually cross Tasman English news. There's a Sussex auction house, Burstow and Hewitt, um, have withdrawn a rare Maori chief's blanket from imminent sale. And this was on the back of online threats and abuse. Museums and institutions from New Zealand and international dealers had expressed serious interest in the piece that was scheduled to be sold on the 18th of September, and it had a conservative estimate of 3,000 to 5,000 pounds. Now, I don't know a lot about the New Zealand artifacts or the Maori artifacts, but it seems reasonably inexpensive for a Maori chief's blanket. Anyway, the end of this story is that the auctioneer Mark Ellum uh, made a quick decision to cancel the sale and inform the police and they returned the cloak to the vendor who have placed it in a bank vault waiting on how to proceed. And this goes into a much bigger story about returning artefacts to the country of origin. And this has certainly happened uh, with Egypt, Egypt calling back a lot of their artefacts that were, now it depends on which side of the story you like, either ransacked or uh, taken for scientific um, research. But the museums across the world are scattered with or littered with uh, Egyptian artifacts. There's been a big recall on that. I also feel the same needs to be done for a lot of the Aboriginal artifacts that are scattered across the world need to be bought in and returned. Now, we are no longer selling artif Aboriginal artifacts because there's so much legislation involved and so many hurdles to... Uh, jump to be able to sell it, uh, we feel that it's just no longer 
um, a necessity for us to be involved in that side of the market. However, there is a lot of artifacts that are across the world that really need to be returned. This is really one of those stories, again, where there are artifacts, very important pieces of anthropological, anthropological, I can't even say the word, history, that do need to be returned to their original owners, or certainly the original country, uh, to be repatriated. Okay, let's have a look at further news. And this is about, I don't know, I keep laughing when I read this one. Uh, novelty, uh, novelty nautical news, a poop deck pops up. A poop deck pops up. Now, this is an interesting one where we mention the same clockmaker again. This is a Guillemet. And he made a very interesting industrial clock that was in the form of a poop deck of a ship with a sailor at the helm rocking from side to side with the motion of a pendulum and another figure of a mariner gathering a rope from a coil on a moulded gilt base. Now this sold for £5,300. So obviously that novelty clocks have a very, very big market. Okay, here's another one on Chinese porcelain getting huge amounts of money. These are the ones that you know, auction rooms and, and look, Profess, we had a very similar one experience with a, a Chinese bronze vase that we had, I think, $500 to $1,000, stand up selling for $9,000. So I can see how this works. This is huge, though. This is a Yongzhen stamped vase, 39 centimetres high. It's a lotus vase. A Hampshire auction room had it for sale for four to 600 pounds which means they're pretty well saying it's a reproduction of the Qing dynasty. However, it opened the sale at £500,000, half a million pounds, and it ended up selling for £1.3 million. Pounds. Huge. So imagine not only the buyer's premium on that, but the surprise for the vendors. Really cool story for the vendors getting £1.3 million. Pounds. And for Lincoln Buffs, I'm going to wind up the news very shortly. We're going way over time here, but this one is quite interesting. A Colchester auction room, uh, Raymond Danzi, offered a set of offer um, sorry, or will offer a set of opera glasses used by Mary Lincoln on the fateful night in 1865 with a guide price of ten dollars to $20,000. Now, the binoculars were engraved to the ivory mounts with the legend, Mrs. Mary Lincoln left these glasses in the box at Ford's Theatre on Good Friday, April the 14th, 1865. Now, this is when her husband, the president of the US at the time, and the leader was cruelly assassinated, assassinated, and these were found by William Kent Esquire. Now, these are both referring to the shooting assassinations of President Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth. Very interesting enough, they come up for sale at ten to £20,000. And finally, in bus news, and this is not what you think, mines out of the gutters, ladies and gentlemen, an Italian marble bust of an emperor provided a moment of sale room drama at Sorda's Fine Interiors Auction on the 10th of September. This bust, which had obvious signs of repair, 52 centimetres high, had an estimate of 3,000 to 5,000 pounds, opened with bidding at 10,000 pounds, and eventually sold to a phone bidder for 96,000 pounds. It was a really cool story again. Anyway, that is the news. Word of the week. 
This week's word of the week is bomb. B-O-M-B-E. Bomb. And the word means blown out in French. It refers to the outward curving of a piece of furniture found in some 18th century Dutch and French furniture. Bomb. B-O-M-B-E. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques, where you can read, watch, learn and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au There's articles, news, video and podcasts, and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au Now you might have seen quirky little pieces of pottery, maybe a koala hugging a tree stump, with Taronga Zoo emblazoned across it. And these are little pieces. And you probably wondered why they're selling for $1,000 plus. After all, they're naive, almost crude pieces of pottery, lacking style, definition, and even the size of pottery of the same era. But these little pieces of pottery are by English-born Australian female potter, Grace Seacombe. And unless you are into Australian pottery or you're an Australian pottery collector, you can be forgiven for not knowing the name and even to question why these quirky little pieces of pottery demand such attention at auction by pottery collectors. Discover to find unexpectedly. Now, don't get me wrong with my introduction. Not all Grace's works were naive or small or dull in colour. But the work she did for Taronga Zoo gift shop were close or as close to mass production as a single potter could really achieve. But Grace also produced some amazing works, not necessarily as highly detailed as, say, Margaret Mahood's works, but they captured the essence of native Australia's flora and fauna. She even went so far as to use Aboriginal designs and motifs in her early 20th century works. So who was Grace Seacombe? Now there's been little written about her, which is quite surprising, but here's what we know. She was born in 1880 and she followed in her father's footsteps as she worked in Burslem, Staffordshire as a potter. In 1902, her family moved to Australia and she attended the Sydney Technical College and studied black and white drawing soon after she married her husband, who was a noted architect. In 1926, she focused on producing hand-modelled earthenware from a modest studio in a suburb of Sydney called Eastwood. And she was also known to frequent Taronga Zoo for inspiration for a modelling of Australian animals. And this is where you start seeing the influence of Taronga Zoo in Australia in her works, where she's producing koalas, um, and kookaburras especially. You see, the kookaburras are absolutely amazing. If you've never seen one, Google Grace Seacombe, and it's spelt S-E-C-C-O-M-B-E, Seacombe, Grace Seacombe. In the 1930s and 40s, she also made a range of dishes and bowls and plates embellished with Aboriginal motives. She also joined the Sydney Society of Arts and exhibited with them until 1951. And she was most noted for a brightly painted hand-modelled pottery of birds and animals. Now, I did start off by saying they're quite naive, but when you compare them to other artists of the same time, they look like naive works. And I wasn't, I'm not being disparaging by any means. I love Grace Seacombe's works and they hold something very endearing, uh, or she captures something very endearing in her works but compared to other works of the same time, they do look quite naive, almost bludgeoned with 
bright colours in some ways. Now her early works are marked with Australia and a cursive S and she also modelled a range for Proud's jewellers and these are marked either Grace Seacombe or the initials GS. Now interestingly, tourists to Australia in the early to mid 20th century were endeared to Grace's works and probably because they captured Australiana and they're also highly portable because they were only reasonably small pieces, sometimes 5, 10, 15 centimetres high. Maybe they were the snow dome or the fridge magnet of the year, I really don't know. So there are many of her works, and these are thousands of them, scattered across the world, and many have been found in the UK and the US. Some of the more popular works include the kookaburra on a green brown stump, seven small kookaburras on a stump, and a koala in a tree, and even or other Australiana native birds. Now these range from $500 to around about $3,000 at auction, and these are still highly collectible at sale. Now you can go online at Learn Antiques to see our full article and images for Grace's works. And you never know, if you look hard enough in local antique shops, in charity stores in Australia, or if you're traveling over to the UK or the US, and you see some naive Australian pottery pieces, especially ones marked with Taronga Zoo, with a cursive S, GS, or Grace Seacom, buy it, because you're on to a winner. Grace Seacom. Ready, go! Oh, my favourite segment, Weird Stuff We Collect. And I get to discover that I am moderately normal. Now, I use that term, moderately normal. I'm less insane than a lot of other people. I don't actually collect anything. I've got lots of stuff around me. If you've ever been to my office, you'll see that it's littered with all sorts of collectibles. But I don't collect one thing. I've, I've never really found the inspiration to get so deeply involved with one particular subject and uh, want to collect it. So when I say that I'm, I'm less, I'm more sane than others, the mind of a collector is quite an interesting one where they are, and a lot of collectors I meet, I have met and still continue to meet lots of collectors. The most interesting part about it is they get so involved and they research, they know everything there is to know about what they collect. And I find that quite amazing that they would uh, invest so much time, let alone the money that they do. So hats off to the collectors out there. You're the reason that we do what we do. You know, I'd love to see collector come in and we, we had a, a collector buy a painting from us quite recently and he drove from Newcastle now, he lives in Victoria. He was in Newcastle doing some business. He drove to Adelaide that day, purchased the painting from us, and he stood there with his card in the air. He was not going to leave the auction room without the painting. He then paid for it, packed it in his car, and he drove back to Victoria that night. Now, hopefully, he had a sleep along the way. But that shows the, the commitment that these collectors go to. Anyway, weird stuff that people collect. This is the final list. This was a countdown from around about uh, 15 down to the number one, including my favorite, which I'll announce at the end, only because it's so weird. Then we'll go into our later episodes. We'll actually start diving a little bit deeper as to what actually makes collectibles collectible. You know, what, what is it that makes Pokemon memorabilia collectible around the world. Okay, banana stickers. Apparently, Becky Martez banana sticker, collect, banana sticker collection consists of over 7,000 unique labels. An Italian magician 
Tony DeSantis owns the largest collection of Joker playing cards, and he's got 8,520 Joker cards. Sucrologist. Sucrologist. Look that one up. Phil Miller collects sugar packets and sugar cube wrappers, and he's been collecting since 1978 and started with the Presidents of the United States Sugar Packets, only in America. Now Dalmatians, Karen Ferrier, is obsessed with Dalmatians, and she owns a collection of 3,500 spotty items. Pokemon. Lisa Courtney in the UK owns 16,000 Pokemon items. 16,000 Pokemon items. Amazing. Nicotine Gumball. Now, this is quite unusual. The world's largest ABC, just stick with that one now, ABC Gumball, and ABC stands for already been chewed. Apparently, that's a term. Already been chewed. Barry Chappell's brilliant idea was born when he was on an international flight. And of course, he couldn't smoke, so he started chewing nicotine gums. Six years later, and 95,200 pieces of gum, he's created a 175-pound gum ball. And the best part of it, he's off smoking. Good on you, Barry. Cell phones, cast and choose from Germany, has collected 1,530. 63 different mobile phones. And Mike Fontaine, he's a 60-year-old. He also owns a McDonald's franchise, has a mind-blowing collection of over 75,000 pieces of McDonald's memorabilia. And this is the mind of a collector. 75,000 pieces of McDonald's memorabilia. The collection occupies over 7,000 square feet of his home in Pennsylvania. And they include 1,000 McDonald's cups, uniforms, 11,700 lapel pins, old displays, and nearly every happy toy meal the chain has ever produced. Belly button fluff. Who would have thought? Anyway, Graham Barker has the largest collection of belly button fluff, and it's his own, and it weighs a staggering 22.1 grams. He started collecting in 1984. Now, 22.1 grams doesn't sound like a lot, but those of you who suffer from belly buttitis, belly buttonitis, you'll know that it takes a lot of Serious collecting to get 22.1 grams of belly button fluff. Anyway, celebrity hairlocks. John Reznikoff owns a bizarre yet the most expansive collection of celebrity hairlocks in the world. And his collection includes the hair of famous celebrities and historical figures such as Edgar Allan Poe, Albert Einstein, Abraham Lincoln, Marilyn Monroe, and Ludwig van Beethoven. Celebrity hairlocks. Troll dolls. Sherry Groom owns an amazing 3,500 troll dolls in her collection. They are horrifying to me. And in chicken-related items. For the last 40 years, Elkhart County's Joanne and Cecil Dixon have collected chicken-related items. And they have 6,505 items of magnets, planters, and chicken ornaments in their collection. Carol Vaughan owns the world's largest soap bar collection. Now, she's a 65-year-old from Birmingham, and she's got over 5,000 soap bars from across the world, and she's been collecting since 1991. 
back scratches, North Carolina dermatologist. There you go. Manfred S. Rothstein owns 675 back scratches from 71 different countries. However, my number one collectible, this is something I covered in last episode. So if you haven't listened to episode seven, you won't be aware of this. For those who do, a wacky couple, Bob and Lizzie Gibbons, share their home with a rather unusual collection of 240 love dolls. Yes, you heard me right, love dolls. My concern for them, however, is they also take them on shopping trips and they dress the dolls up. So I wonder what type of parties Bob and Lizzie are having. Good on you, Bob and Lizzie, for my number one pick for collectibles across the world. That is a huge collection of collectibles into the mind of the collector. We shall delve over the next weeks of the Antique Show. Weird stuff we collect. Scammell Auctions is one of the most diverse and certainly the most interesting and dynamic auction room in Australia. What have we got coming up for sale over the next few weeks? In addition to our Monday sales, which kick off at 9am with the gallery and the furniture every single week. And don't forget, the long weekend in October will start the sale on Tuesday at 9am. But in addition to the weekly estate sales, we have the stocking com and contents of the Ackworth Antiques. And this is, comes up on Tuesday, the 1st of October. That starts at 10am. The catalogue is now online, and sadly, we see the passing of another one of our antique and auction heroes, Alan Ackworth, who is no longer with us, and he was in the industry for oh, 30, 40 years, uh, located down at Semaphore. Um, sadly, Alan passed away after a, a long battle with illness, and we have the great fortune of offering the contents of his uh, shop, and this will be held at Scammell Auctions. Tuesday the 1st of October at 10 a.m. The catalogue is now online. Fabulous collection. Alan had a very, very good eye. And there's some really nice Australian and European, especially English antiques. We also have an online sale, which is the silver jewellery auction. And that is online now. Uh, bidding is open for that. And that goes for final knockdown on Tuesday the 8th of October. We also have a mid-century modern auction, and that is going to be held at the end of October, the 28th of October at 6 p.m. And we also have a carnival sale. Not carnival glass, but a carny auction. Dodgem cars, there's, oh, I don't even know what else is in there. There's other type of small rides. There's lots of posters, lots of signage. Four containers worth of carnival fair items and that comes up for sale very shortly so check online at scammels.com.au go to catalogs through our front page and you'll get into the catalog page and see all the forthcoming sales scammels can be located at 7 chapel street nord 83620404 you can contact me jason at scammelauctions.com.au prepare yourself Okay, let's go. What's it worth? We go through some of the highlights of items that we've sold at auction over the last couple of weeks. Like to start with lot number 29. This was from our fine art sale. And this is a lovely little still life hand colored woodblock monogrammed piece of work by 
Gladys Osborne Rennell, and that sold for $2,500. And on to more of the lithographs. This is called The Ragged Poet. It was lot number 16. It was uh, by Norman Lindsay. So his full name is Norman Alfred William Lindsay. And it's a lovely little piece in etching number 31, signed lower right, and that sold for $2,900. Now our first Albert Namajira sold at Scammells. This is a lovely little work. Ghost Gums is a watercolour signed lower right, measuring 33 by 26 centimetres, and that sold for $8,800. And our second Dorrit Black, this is Dorothea Foster Black. Dorrit Black, as she's well known as. Lovely little bush landscape watercolour, 26 by 37 centimetres, and that sold for $5,200. And to more contemporary works, lovely big piece called Children in a Boat. It's an acrylic on canvas by David Bromley, and that sold for 7500 To our last week's day auction, now we covered in Learn Antiques, that's our sister website, Learn Antiques, an artist by the name of Martin Sharp. Now Martin did a lot of Adelaide Festival work, and in 1982 he did the Adelaide Festival of Arts. This is a screen print, it's a poster. It measures 2.3 metres long by 1.18 metres wide, and that sold for $1,000. Into industrial furniture. A trolley car, this is quite surprising, it's a trolley car, so probably from the uh, railways or somewhere. We believe it's from Albany in Western Australia. There's a 19th century whaling station car and that sold for $1,200. For those who collect silver, a lovely little sterling silver trophy cup, really beautifully chased, and that was weighing 429 grams, so not, not really heavy. Sold for $360 and finally into some pottery. A lovely little osprey pottery beaker and it only measures eight centimeters high had a minor crack through it and this was by Gladys Rennell out of Ballarat in 1924 sold for $400. If you want to find out more of what items are worth free resource online at scammels.com.au go to our catalog page by clicking on catalog or any of the sales icons on the front page go to the catalog page under auctions click on past auctions all of our past auctions are on there, including a photograph, the description, and most importantly, the price it sold. And that's What's It Worth This Week. And that's almost a wrap for Episode 8 of The Antique Show. Thank you for joining me. But before I go, I want to share a story. I had the great fortune last week, last Wednesday, of not only meeting, but uh, sitting in on a learning event hosted by Warren Rustin. Now, a lot of you might not know who Warren Rustin is. He's an entrepreneur, he's an educator, he's a public servant. He has served as the secretary to President Gerald Ford. Very good speaker, has taken small businesses to large businesses, has uh, at some points in time had 17,000 staff working for him. Now, Warren, I think he's around about 76 years old. He's probably the fittest 76 year old I've ever come across. Has this beautiful mindset um, and love for his family. And I learned a lot from him. But one of the biggest takeaways from me, he mentioned about rocks in the backpack. And I went, oh, rocks in your backpack. And I thought back to my time when I was climbing Mount Fuji about how much harder that could have been had I been wearing a backpack having stuff in it, being weighed down by things I actually don't need. So the analogy for me was 
you're carrying around stuff with you that you actually don't need to carry around with you anymore. You just need to have the commitment and courage to discard those rocks or those things or people or conversations or even mindsets. Things that you think about yourself, things that you believe from your past, things that have been weighing you down, things that you, for whatever reason, cast a shade of grey or black, it might be, over your life. It's now time to get rid of those rocks out of your backpack. And it really struck me, and I went home that night and reflected on it, and I've got a couple of things to do with my family that I need to address. And these are the rocks in my, or some of the rocks in my backpack. And it's quite liberating to start removing some of those rocks, to actually feel lighter, to have your life around you feel lighter and a little bit brighter. That was one of my big takeaways, rocks in your backpack. Thank you for joining me, episode eight of The Antique Show. You can contact me at jason at scammerlauctions.com.au. You can even give me a text on my mobile, 0421345663. Write into us if you want to know something, got a question to ask about antiques, art, auctions, anything like that please write in to me. We'll cover it off in the next episode. Have a fabulous rest of your weekend. Enjoy your week. Drive safely. Love your family. Love yourself. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. That was another episode of The Antique Show. And it was brought to you by Antique Education, Learn Antiques, and Scammel Auctions. Recorded in the Antique Show Studios in the Antique Education Headquarters in Grange, South Australia. Copyright 2019.